My name is Jillian, and the Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 4, 1-5. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Come on, Lord! Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kat. The New Testament reading is found in Romans eleven thirty-three, and chapter 12, 2. God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are so deep. They are as mysterious as his judgments, and they are as hard to track as his paths. Who has known the Lord's mind? Or who has been his mentor? Or who has given him a gift and has been paid back by him? All things are from him and through him and for him. May the glory be to him forever. Amen. So brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to the God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sandy. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 18, 23 through 24, and 27 through 33. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, they brought him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. The master had compassion on that servant, released him, and forgave the loan. When that servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. And he grabbed him around the throat, and he said, pay me back what you owe me. And then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he threw him into prison until he paid back his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply offended. They came and told their master all that happened. And his master called the first servant and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we are gathered here together by you in your presence. Uh, And the longing, the desire, the deep need even of our hearts is to hear you speak, to hear your word. So would you speak to us today? More importantly, would you help us to hear? That you would open our ears to hear, that you'd open our minds to understand, and that we pray that your word would sink down deep into our souls. That, that we would see and understand even more the mercy of God. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for braving the snow, uh, especially you Texas and California transplants. Well done. Uh, for those of you that didn't brave it or are watching online, thank God for streaming. It's good to see the other half of you there. 
Um, we are in the middle, or actually the end, of a sermon series uh, through the book of Jonah. But I was thinking about this sermon today, I began to think about uh, my favorite TV show of all time, uh, which is The West Wing. Any other West Wing fans in the house? Okay, maybe just a, a handful of us. Uh, so The West Wing uh, is a show several years ago uh, by Aaron Sorkin. And in the very first season, in the third episode of that season, uh, we see President Jed Bartlett, who's portrayed masterfully by Martin Sheen. And he's gathered together in this situation room with the Joint Chiefs. In the previous episode, what had happened is that uh, the Syrian Defense Ministry had shot, uh, had shot down an Air Force transport uh, and killed everyone that was on board, including the president's own personal physician, a man named Morris Tolliver, who had just uh, had a newborn baby. And so we see the president now gathered together in the situation room talking about how the U.S. is going to respond to this act of aggression from a foreign power. And Admiral Fitzwallis, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, sits down. He, pre he presents President Bartlett with three scenarios that he says meet the obligations of proportional response. We're going to respond proportionately to what happens. And immediately you can see the anger sort of like come on President Bartlett's face. And he looks at them and he says, what is the virtue of a proportional response? And they're just like, what? <laughs> He's like, why is it good? Later on in the conversation as it's going on, Admiral Fitzwallis says, it isn't virtuous. It's just all that there is. And then the president becomes incredibly angry and goes on this rant, starts beating the table. And he's like, it's not all that there is. He's like, well, what else is there? He says, there's the disproportionate response. And he says, let it be known from this day forth that if you kill an American, you kill any American. We don't come back with a proportional response. We come back with total disaster. And he storms out of the room. You're like, oh, President Bartlett is Jonah. This is what he wants, total disaster for his enemies. And there's a part of us that's like, yes! We're in the fourth and final week of this sermon series through this book, through this book of Jonah called When God Calls. And we're looking today at the fourth chapter, the chapter that people are least familiar with because it gets dropped out of all the children's storybook versions uh, of this. And just to summarize where we're at so far, if you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, it begins with God calling this prophet to go to the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is this large city in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which is the, really the first true empire in the ancient world. And these are cruel and vicious and heinous people that, whose goal is to conquer the world and to strike terror in everybody that they conquer. And they really pose this significant ongoing threat to Israel, to Jonah and to Jonah's people. And God calls Jonah to go there. God calls him to go to his enemies. He calls him to go to the last people and the last place that Jonah would ever want to go. And so what does Jonah do? He gets up and he goes the other direction. <laughs> Right? You're like, yeah, no, thank you. I think I would like to go here instead. And we talked about in the very first week that oftentimes when Jonah's talked about, it's talked about that Jonah has a disobedience problem and that Jonah really just needs to learn how to obey. But actually, there's something deeper going on for Jonah. Jonah doesn't have a disobedience problem. Jonah has a theological one. 
Jonah really has an issue with God himself and what, uh, how God chooses to act. Jonah wants God to punish the Assyrians. He wants total disaster for Nineveh, and he knows that God's a God who's willing to relent, that God's a God who's merciful. So he gets up and he goes the other way, and as he's going, he gets on this boat, and this storm comes up, and it ends up through a long series of events that Jonah ends up being thrown overboard and nearly drowns. He's willing to actually go to the deepest place that he knows in order to avoid going to Nineveh. But he finds that the mercy of God goes deeper still. And God saves him by appointing a fish to come and swallow him. The fish is not God's punishment to Jonah. It's an expression of God's mercy, of God's salvation coming to Jonah in this place. So Jonah gets rescued and he gets vomited back up on dry land. And then what happens is the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again calling him once again, hey, get up, go to Nineveh and proclaim this message. And so he goes and he gets really just into the beginning of the city and he proclaims his message, which is in 40 days that God will overthrow the city. God will bring total disaster. And when the word reaches the people, they all repent. They turn from the evil that's in their hand and they repent in these really drastic ways. And so God doesn't destroy the city. And when you think about it, as you're reading this story, it sounds like, and this is actually how a lot of the children's Bible stories go, here we have a prophet who finally does what he's called to do, and it goes really well, right? Everybody responds. It's like he has the greatest altar call in the history of preaching. An entire city repents, and here's what happens for Jonah. He's ticked. He's incredibly angry. We read this in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. It says, and Jonah thought this was utterly wrong. And he became angry. The, the word actually is in the original language says, this was evil to Jonah. And then it repeats it, a great evil. This is how Jonah feels about this. This is not just wrong. This is evil. And not just like moderate evil. This is great evil evil. This is evil what has happened here. And the word evil actually appears numerous times in the book. One of the things that happens in the book of Jonah is that there's this wordplay happening with the word evil, but we miss it oftentimes in English translations. The very beginning of the book says God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before him. Their evil, their violence, their wickedness has come up before God. So he's sending Jonah to them. Jonah then goes the other way, and this storm comes to the sailors who are on the boat that Jonah has gotten on, and they're trying to figure out, why has this evil come upon us? Why has this happened to us? They're like throwing dice to try to figure out whose problem this is. And then Jonah finally says, okay, I'm the problem here. And they're like, tell us why, tell us why this evil has come upon us. Why have you brought this evil upon us? And then when we get into chapter three, the king of Nineveh says, let's actually turn from our evil. Says to each person, turn from the evil that is in your hand. And God saw, verse 10, that they had turned from their evil ways. So verse 10 again, God relented from the evil that he said he was going to do. And then Jonah says, this is evil. This is a great evil. And then he says this wonderful prayer, which I think is, you know, a prayer that many of us have prayed at some point in our life. He prayed to the Lord, come! 
come on. Are you kidding me right now? Come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point? Wasn't this what I was trying to tell you to begin with? God, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm making a point here. How many times have our prayers looked like that? He says, this is why I fled. This is why I did what I did. Jonah just justifying himself. He says, I know this is exactly who you are. You're a merciful God. You're a compassionate God. You're incredibly patient God. You are full of faithful love and you're willing to destroy. And all of those things make me really upset right now. Right? This is evil. And actually says that willing to destroy says God is willing to relent from evil. This is who God is. Jonah knows this. And now Jonah sees it. That this is who God is. God's a God who holds back. He's a God who delays. He's a God who extends mercy. He's a God who extends compassion. He's a God who forgives. Even those who seem least worthy of it. He's a God who forgives. This is who God is, and this is what God does, and that is evil to Jonah. God being who he is, and God doing what God does, is evil to Jonah. It's like, you know what? This is evil. This is a great evil. And then the language says he became angry. Literally, he became hot. (laughs) He started to burn up. He's heating up in this moment. Jonah is burning with anger at what he has seen happen. And if we're honest, we can sympathize with Jonah, can't we? If we're honest, we can probably all think about a moment in time where we have been angry with God. Like this is not a foreign emotion to us to say, wait a minute. We maybe don't want to tell anybody because we're told, you know, throughout our whole lives not to be angry at all, uh, and certainly don't be angry with God. The Scriptures don't shy away from people being angry with God. They see this all over in the Scriptures, that this is an an experience, an emotion that people have. We can sympathize with Jonah. We've been there. Maybe for one of us or for some of us, we wanted God to do something, but He didn't. It's like we're we're wanting, we're hoping, we're longing. Maybe we prayed for something to happen and it didn't happen. Or it just, it hasn't happened yet. And the longer it goes on, the angrier that we get. It's like, come on, what is the deal? Or perhaps it maybe even appeared that God did the opposite. Like we prayed for something to happen and it didn't happen. And maybe it even, it's like, but didn't happen. Instead, the opposite thing happened. Or maybe it was like nothing happened. We're like, what? What is going on here? And in those moments for us weren't just disappointing, but it felt wrong, felt evil. And, and we found ourselves getting angry in the same way. And you think it just various moments in my own life. Uh, oftentimes when I'm thinking of moments like this, for some reason breakups come up right away. I don't know why. This is the second breakup story I'm telling you uh, in this sermon series. Um, it's just to, con- you know, generate sympathy. Um, but there, I was dating this girl for a long time in college. And just kind of out of the blue, she broke up with me and blamed it on God. If you're dating somebody and you decide to break up with them, Leave God out of the conversation, okay? Just own it yourself. 
and just say, I don't see this relationship having a future, and then end it. You do not need to appeal to the divine to help yourself in this conversation, okay? But she appealed to the divine, and I went back to my room, and I'm trying to pray, and I'm trying to read the Bible, and all I end up doing is just throwing my Bible across the room. I'm so angry. I should have been angry at her, but because she played the God card, I got angry at God in the middle of it. Finding myself kind of in those moments, I remember another moment of just Sarah and I uh, losing our first baby to a miscarriage and feeling angry in those moments. Like, what? We just told people, and now this. There's an anger and there's a sadness there. I remember working at the first church that I worked at, and the senior pastor had uh, ended up, you know, being fired for moral issues, and the whole church is kind of crumbling down. I remember sitting in the, the youth room as a youth pastor, just being angry, like, why is this happening? What is going to happen? And being angry, or moments where uh, I ended up in a job that just didn't, not this job, a different job. I ended up in a job, <laughs> thinking, we got to qualify that real quick. I ended up in a job that just didn't turn out the way that I had hoped. And, and, it, and I, 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 was, I felt confident. I was like, I really thought that this was what we were supposed to do. I thought this is where the Lord was leading us, and it didn't turn out the way that I wanted. And I remember driving home from work numerous times, just yelling at God in the car, like, why are we in this moment? Next week, as we begin Lent, uh, Pastor Glenn's going to share with us just kind of a standalone sermon on what do we do with these kind of emotions? What do we do with our anger and our sadness and our fear? How does Lent actually teach us to take those things to God, to lament and to express these kinds of emotions? But oftentimes when we talk about anger specifically, anger is oftentimes a masking emotion, that there's actually something underneath of that that's, that's really making us angry, that there's something else that's going on, something that's underneath it, like sadness or disappointment or fear or worry or anxiety or regret. But what's interesting here is what's underneath Jonah's anger. What's underneath Jonah's anger is really where the problem is. The anger is not as much of the problem. It's what's underneath of it. See, according to Jonah, Nineveh has gone too far, right? They, they've crossed a line. They've been too evil. And the only response to them is punishment in Jonah's mind. This, this can be the only response. There's a line. Jonah knows exactly where it is. Jonah has drawn it himself. And Nineveh has clearly crossed it. So justice, according to Jonah, demands response. It demands punishment. To let Nineveh go unpunished would be unjust. This is where Jonah's at. They have gone too far, so they need to have evil returned for evil. They need maybe even more than, not even a proportional response, they need a disproportional response. Total disaster is what they deserve. And when God doesn't do that, what Jonah does is Jonah judges God. This is where Jonah places himself in. He places himself as the one who gets to be the determining factor the determining voice. He gets to be the decider of what it is that God does or doesn't do or what God should do or what God should not do. Jonah places himself in the, in the place of saying, I'm going to determine what is right and wrong and good and evil. And right now, God, you have crossed the line. 
God, you have done evil. You've gone too far. He's decided to actually place himself in the very position that Adam and Eve initially placed themselves in, right? The serpent came to them and said, look at this fruit. This fruit will help you become wise. You'll be able to know what is good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a way of saying that you can be the ones who self-determine this. You can be the ones who decide what the moral line is. Jonah places himself in that point, and in doing so, he actually believes that he's more righteous and more just than God. This is the point he's put himself in. He's decided underneath this anger is that he's decided he knows better. How often do we find ourselves in that place with God? We're reading something, we're hearing something, we're wrestling with God on something, and how easy is it for us to place ourselves in that spot? I'm saying, yeah, 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 but I know better. Yeah, no, that, that, that can't be right. Surely I've got a better perspective on this. See, Jonah's problem is with how God withholds justice and dispenses mercy. See, for Jonah, God lets too much evil go unpunished. And lets too much evil lapse. And because of that, he believes that God can't be counted on. Right? God is now unreliable. He's unpredictable. And all of life then for Jonah becomes uncertain. Like if, if God is not going to do what I want him to do, when, he is, when I want him to do that, then what is the point of following God to begin with? What's the point? If, if God is not going to follow my line and my train of thought and go according to my ways here, if God is going to prove himself to be unjust in my own determination, if God is going to do things that I fundamentally disagree with, and if he's not going to do things that I've determined are right or wrong or good or evil, then what's the point of faithfulness? What's the point of following God? This is why a lot of people will place Jonah amongst the wisdom literature of the Bible, wrestling with the question of what do we do in our relationship with God when it seems like the wicked prosper and the, and the just are punished. What do we do in those moments? Jonah judges God. And then we see God's response, though, here. This way he says, at this point, uh, no, Jonah keeps going on. He says, at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to live than to die. Like, this is how unpredictable, uncertain life is. It's like, you know what? It's just better if I were done. Jonah has become, gotten to that point of despair in the middle of this. But look at how the Lord responds. The Lord responds when he comes and he asks Jonah a question. How tender is it for God to ask him a question at this point? God doesn't give him a speech. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't come down with wrath and with fire and lightning bolts. God comes to him and says, is this good? Is your anger good for you? What's, what's going on inside of you right now? Is this, is this good for you? Is your anger really a good thing? Is that what's going on? But look at what Jonah. But Jonah doesn't respond. Doesn't say anything. God speaks and Jonah just goes silent. He goes dark. And Jonah went out from the city and he sat down east of the city and there he made himself a little hut. And he sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. 
See, Jonah is at this point where he says, you know, if this is how God is going to act, if this is who God is, if God is going to be a God who forgives my enemies, if God is going to be a God who lets the people who hurt me go unpunished, if God is going to do these kind of things that anger me, if God is going to disappoint me, if God is going to not do what I want him to do the way I want him to do it in the time I want him to do it and the people that I want him to do it to, if God is going to relent, if God is going to choose mercy over justice, if God can't be counted on to do what he should do or what I want, or I, what I want him to do, then I'm out. And especially if those people are in, then I'm out. If God's people include those people, if God's going to extend mercy to those people, then I no longer want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to be a part of you. I don't want to be part of what you're doing. I don't want to be a part of those people. I want out. God, if this is how you're going to act, if this is going to who you're going to prove yourself to be, then I'm out. I'm done. And then in this moment, God shows incredible patience with Jonah. The God who is merciful and compassionate is merciful and compassionate to Jonah. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness shows himself to be slow to anger and faithful to Jonah. The God who's willing to relent doesn't unleash punishment on Jonah at this point. So he comes to him. The God who made the heavens and the earth doesn't give Jonah what he wants, but instead he stays in the conversation. He keeps talking. He comes to him like a parent does to an angry child, to a child who's throwing a, a temper tantrum, right? That's what Jonah's doing. He's throwing the biggest temper tantrum in the Bible. It's like, Argh! and God comes to him. He's like, is this good for you, buddy? <laughs> is this really good for you? He comes gentle. He comes concerned. It's like, is this, is this good for you? Like, take a moment, like, Explore the iceberg right now in your heart, Jonah. Is this, that's an EH joke for all of you who are in EH. Is this going to go well for you? Is this going to end well? Is this for your benefit? Is this really good? See, this is how God responds to us when we're angry with him. Even when we're angry about the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. Like there are things in life that happen that we can have like a righteous anger toward. Jonah's is an unrighteous anger. It's coming out of his judgments of God. And God comes to him even that moment with gentleness, with love, with, with care, with concern. But Jonah doesn't answer. Instead, what Jonah does is that he disassociates himself from God. He distances himself. He walks away from the conversation. Jonah distances himself from God. And the, the truth is, is, we have a tendency to do the same thing at times, right? We find ourselves with emotions that we're not sure what to do with. And we, and we find ourselves directing those emotions to God. And in the midst of whatever God might be trying to do in the middle of that, we just distance ourselves. We distance ourselves from Him, from His people. We walk away from God. We stop praying. We stop reading the scriptures. We, we stop gathering together with his people. We just distance ourselves in some way. We push away. And what Jonah does here is he specifically goes outside of the city to the east. This is the same direction that Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. This is the same direction that Cain went after he killed Abel. He goes to the east. He goes 
into exile, the same direction the people of God go when they get taken into exile in Babylon. They go to the east. Jonah places himself in a self-imposed timeout, right? And he makes himself a little house, a little tent, a little fort, a little booth to kind of hide in. And then it's interesting, it says, he waits to see what will happen to the city, right? He sits down and he waits to see what will happen. The idea here for Jonah is, you know, if I just wait a little bit, God will come to his senses, right? I'm not going to talk to God until God changes his mind, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to carry on this conversation. I'm just going to sit here anyway, and you're going to come to your senses. You're going to see things my way, and then you will destroy the city. Instead, God comes to him with an object lesson. (laughs) It's like, okay, how can I reach Jonah in this moment? How can I help him see? How can I help him understand what's going on? So instead of God destroying Nineveh, this is what he does. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, as he does, a shrubbery. And it, and it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. And Jonah was very happy about the shrub. <laughs> like, talk about emotions, right? God graciously appoints this bush to provide shade for Jonah. And the language, actually, in the original language is Jonah was happy, a great happy It's the exact same language, Jonah. This was evil to Jonah, a great evil. This was happy to Jonah, a great happy. It's like happy, happy, joy, joy. This is wonderful. He's thrilled about this plant that just appeared out of nowhere. And it says here that the plant came to provide shade for his head. Throughout the Old Testament, really throughout the scriptures, shade is often a metaphor for God's grace. Coming to shade us, God graciously shows himself shades Jonah from the heats, from the sun, from what Jonah's burning up about. And it says that the second thing came was to deliver him from his misery. The original language actually says to deliver him from his evil, from Jonah's evil. See, this is where Jonah has found himself. In judging God, he's now found himself as the one who needs to be delivered from his own evil in the same way that, Nin- that God delivered Nineveh from theirs. From the evil that was in their hands, they turned from it. Jonah now finds himself with evil in his hands. And God comes to him and provides the means to deliver Jonah from his own evil. In the midst of this moment, this is how God responds to him. He comes to him to provide the means to deliver him from his own evil. And as we'll see as the story goes on, how he delivers him is not what it seems. It's not the shrub, but God himself coming to Jonah. The next verse it says, but God provided a worm the next day at dawn. I love how we get like worms and plants and fish and all throughout this book. And it attacked the shrub, so it died. And then the sun rose and God provided a dry east wind and the sun began to beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. Same language that he experienced in Jonah chapter 2 as he was drowning, becoming faint. His life was ebbing away from him. And he begged again that he might die, saying, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah one more time, he's like, okay, is your anger about the shrub? Is that good? Like, okay, let's, let's, let's like, not talk about Nineveh anymore. Let's talk about this shrub. 
Like maybe we can have this conversation since we can't have that conversation. Let's talk about this. And Jonah's response is classic. Yes, my anger is good. He's not silent anymore. Now he's just seething in every direction. Yes, it's good, even to the point of death. I, it's so good for me to be angry that if my anger kills me, it's a good thing. This is where he's so committed to his position. So Jonah's sitting there waiting for God to destroy Nineveh, and instead of destroying Nineveh, the city that has brought him fear and pain and evil, God appoints a worm to destroy the thing that brought Jonah joy. Instead of destroying what he wanted him to destroy, destroyed something else. And according to Jonah, God's destroyed the wrong thing. You were supposed to come to your senses and kill my enemies. Instead, you killed this. This thing that brought me joy, that brought me comfort, that brought me whatever. You killed the wrong thing, God. Again, making a judgment about what it is that God should have done in given situations. And again, Jonah believes that his anger is good. His anger is just, that his anger is righteous. He believes that God is still the guilty party in this conversation. Not him. God's the guilty party. And then God says this. He says, but the Lord said, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work. You didn't do anything for this plant. You didn't raise it. Instead, it grew up in a night and it perished in a night. You did nothing for this, and you had it for 24 hours, and then you had pity for it? Yet I, for my part, I can't pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left, and also many animals. By the way, the book just ends at this point. (laughs) Like, no fifth chapter with Jonah responding. Instead, we're all supposed to see ourselves as Jonah and God asking us this question, right? If for me, should I not have compassion? See, the shrub in this story is an expression of God's mercy. It's an undeserved, unearned gift. Jonah didn't create it. Jonah didn't plant it. Jonah didn't tend it. Jonah didn't do anything for it. Instead, God created it and God provided it for him. Jonah did nothing. It's not his. He has no right to it. But he pities it. After one day, he's willing to die for it. This reminds me of those moments with my kids when they, you know, get something like from a Happy Meal sort of toy or something, and then it gets lost, or like one of their sisters breaks it, and it's like they're weeping. It's like, but it's my special thing. He's like, you've had it for 10 minutes. How is it this your special thing? And then the next day, they've completely forgotten all about it. But in that moment, it's the most special thing ever. They didn't do anything for it. They didn't pay for the meal. Like, they didn't, didn't make this little toy. They've got nine others of them somewhere lost in the house. But it's like this attachment. This is my special thing. And he pities it. He has compassion for it. He's heartbroken about it. And yet Jonah is going to judge God for pitying the Ninevites, for pitying them. Interestingly, earlier in the book, Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, there's this verse that says, now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city. In the original language, it actually says that Nineveh was a great city, and then it says, to God. 
or for God. We're not sure exactly what it's supposed to mean. So oftentimes people will translate it and say, oh, this just means it's like so big, it's like God-like. I think what God's trying to say is that this is his city. These are his people. This is not just some random thing, but literally the city belongs to him. And because the city and the people and the whole world belong to God, because he created it and he has the right to decide what will happen to it. Jonah doesn't. God does. Nineveh is described as this place with 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left. Who don't know. It's likely that this reference is, re- is a reference to the Torah. That they haven't received the revelation that says what is good and what is evil. They haven't been instructed in this way Jonah has, but they haven't. And so God extends mercy to them, and not just to them, but to the many cattle. <laughs> right? This is his way of saying, my mercy will extend to the whole world, to the wicked, and to all of creation. I care about it all, Jonah. I don't just care about you and your people. I care about everyone, even those that you don't care about, and even those things that you don't think are worth caring about. I care about them. There's no limits to my care. There's no limit to my concern. This is all mine, and I care about it, and I want to see it thrive and flourish. I want to rescue it. I have compassion for it. I have pity for it. I've done everything for it. You did nothing for the plants, and you feel this way about it, but you're going to judge me for how I feel about this? See, Jonah has received mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. He was born an Israelite. He knows the Torah. He knows his right from his left. He was called to be a prophet. He received God's word. And when he ran away, God ran after him. And he went to the deep, God went deeper still. When he went into self-imposed exile, God followed him and spoke to him. When he was burning up with anger under the hot sun, God provided a shrub for him. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. But Jonah, like the servant in the gospel reading who also received mercy, who received this forgiveness of 10,000 bags of gold, instead withheld it from others. He received mercy. And Jesus says to that servant, shouldn't he also have mercy on others? When you've received so much mercy, shouldn't you also have mercy on others? And even so much more, if God has shown Jonah mercy, shouldn't he also show the Ninevites mercy? If Jonah can pity the shrub, Isn't it also okay for God to pity Nineveh? Bringing him an object lesson to try to get to his heart. It's really interesting here, the word pity, it's used here, actually implies being deeply troubled to the point of weeping, being troubled to the point of tears, and being moved to act in a way that causes one to be willing to suffer. He's so deeply moved by the people of Nineveh that he's willing to move with compassion and even to suffer for there to be tears in his eyes instead of in theirs. Terence Fredheim put it this way. says that this word pity, it is a suffering action. Here God takes upon himself the evil of Nineveh. He bears the weight of its violence. He bears the pain of a thousand plundered cities including Israel's. 
And God chooses to suffer in place of Nineveh. His tears flow instead of theirs. Someday, he may even choose to die. See, the books like Jonah, even the Old Testament, reveal to us a God who's willing to suffer to save. This is God's heart toward his entire creation. This is his heart toward you. It's his heart toward me. It's his heart even to our enemies. That he's willing to suffer to save. And we see that 2,000 years ago he did. The word of God didn't come to a prophet, but the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And with tears in his eyes, Jesus bore the weight of all of our evil. He bore it all on himself. He suffered on our behalf. He chose to die so that we might live. In Jesus, God provides the means to deliver us all from evil. This is who God is. This is how God responds to us. This is the mercy of God that the book of Jonah is trying to show us. The mercy of God that we fully see in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is God's disproportionate response. The disproportionate response is not to bring total disaster, but to bring total deliverance. The disproportionate response of God is to take all the evil upon himself and to die in our place. The disproportionate response of God is to show all of us mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. The disproportionate response of God is that when we begin to distance ourselves from him, he comes running after us and draws near. This is the disproportionate response of God. The disproportionate response that he wants to show all of us. But he has shown us in the person of Jesus. And this is why Paul, in the book of Romans, gets to this place where he spends 11 chapters talking about the mercy of God. And he says, you know, at the end of the day, it's like we can't understand it. We can't fully wrap our minds around it. But he says, this is what it is. And he breaks out into this song. And then he says to the church, he says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, don't distance yourself from God, but draw near to him. The one who's drawn near to you, draw near to him and find that in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, that there's an invitation to trust him. To trust him to sort it all out in the end. To trust him with all the emotions that you're feeling to trust him with the disappointment, to trust him with the anger, to trust him with the, you thought it should have gone this way or that way, but instead in view of God's mercy, to trust his character, that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and willing and ready and able and eager to forgive, to draw near to that God and receive the forgiveness that's available to us in the person of Jesus. Evan, would you lead us to the table this morning?